0: Right now, we've been going along with a system that empowered Russia and China to misbehave in the international arena it is the week of June 1st, and welcome to episode 27 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Dana Stroul, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Last month, President Trump announced that his administration had begun the withdrawal process for the Open Skies Treaty. Open Skies is a multilateral agreement that gives about 30 nations the right to unarmed reconnaissance flights over each other's territory. The purpose of the agreement is to build trust between potential adversaries. Notably, China is not a member. Russia, who is a member, has not been complying with the agreement, refusing to allow flights over sensitive areas. We, the United States, won't actually leave the agreement until late November after the 2020 election. And the administration has left open the possibility that the U.S. might not leave if Russia fully complies with the treaty. So, Jody... If Russia's not complying with this treaty, what's the point of the U.S. continuing to stay in it?
1: So a couple of things here. Sometimes we model the behavior that we want to see, knowing that it'll pay off in the end. And treaties are a lot about setting behavioral expectations to prevent further drift from where we want countries to be or how we want them to act. And second, the Open Skies Treaty is part of a network of arms control treaties that are designed to set up A situation so that no one accidentally launches a nuclear war. I I have to say, like, open skies of these treaties isn't the most important one of them, but it isn't without value. It's not a bilateral treaty between the United States and Russia. This treaty has 35 countries participating in it, including the United States and Russia. And the goal, as you laid out, is transparency about military activities to avoid miscalculations that could lead to a nuclear war. With more advanced weapon systems, it would seem prudent to preserve all of our options in these areas. Yes, satellites can do some of the same things, but not every party to this treaty has the same satellite capability. And then I think you also have to kind of speak to this issue in the context of mild behavior, but also it builds confidence and familiarity amongst the parties, people cooperate and participate in in overflights over nation states that are party to the treaty. And that matters in terms of building confidence and camaraderie between states, understanding that our whole goal here with this treaty, you know, with the INF treaty we already pulled out of, and same thing with the START treaty that we'll talk about later, is about building confidence and being transparent so that we don't end up with an accidental nuclear war.
0: So Jody, let me just push back a little bit and ask if the purpose of staying in the agreement is to build trust, how do you factor in the fact that Russia is basically cheating on the agreement? How can you build trust in something? where the main other party, and yes, it is multilateral, but let's face it, the real point of this is to build trust with Russia. If Russia's cheating, what kind of trust are we building?
1: Right. That's not to say that Russia's acted well under this treaty. They haven't. There have been instances where they have not allowed partner countries to over. Fly parts of their territory or to oversee some of their military exercises. At the same time, we've seen a little bit of a reversal of that recently. They allowed a us estonian latvian uh, treaty flight over Kaliningrad, which was not something they had allowed before. But I have to go back to my original point, which is we need to model the behavior that we want so that we can preserve our options in the long run. That is what we're doing here. We're preserving options, and we are going to hold Russia to account for the places where it fails, and we're going to do our part and try to bring them along with us because it's in every. But his interest. There's no interest of ours that is served by pulling out.
0: Jamil, let me ask you, what does it cost us to stay in this agreement? Let's take Jody's point that this is preserving our options. Let's also point out that a lot of our European allies and friends feel very strongly about this particular agreement. What does it cost us? Why not just stay in the agreement, kind of keep our options open for later and see how things play out?
2: Well, Leslie, I think the problem is that's exactly what we've done for the last five years. It's been since 2014 that the Russians have not allowed us to fly over the Kaliningrad area, right, as well as the border zone with uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, where they have clearly engaged in sort of the same little green men activity that they did in Ukraine, where they're basically essentially taking over a part of another country. And so they are the ones violating the treaty. They've been violating it for five years, right? We haven't done anything about it. And so it's no shock they continue to do it, right? The Russians respond to pressure. They respond to us actually taking action. And so look, let's be clear. We've said we're threatening to pull out, right? Right. Just as of late April, the ambassador to Russia made clear that all options remain on the table, right? So we're still willing, and you know, you even just pointed out that we've kept the door open to staying in if Russia stops behaving badly. That's how you shape nation state behavior. You don't shape nation state behavior by just laying back and be like, well, you're ignoring the treaty, so we'll just let it happen. I mean, that was, you know, the entire history of the Obama administration, and it's been the recent history of the Trump administration. So, you know, it's no shocker that the Russians aren't complying. This is just They're doing what's in their interest and, you know, and we're not doing anything about it. So finally, now we're getting a little spicy. And, you know, let's see if we can bring them around. But just waiting to see and hoping that maybe it'll all work out is not a solution to this problem.
0: Jamil, one of the things that you and I, as Republicans who are a little bit skeptical of this administration, tend to focus on is that this administration does not treat our allies well. It does not honor the alliances that got us through the Cold War and through the War on Terror and through a lot of difficult periods. So here our allies, our friends in Europe are saying to us, please don't get out. We feel very strongly about this. Why not do it for them?
2: Look, our allies in Europe also took a pass on Iran and wanted to do the deal with Iran. They want, to, they want to sustain that deal. Our allies aren't always right on these things. And frankly, this is one area where our allies are so worried about Russia and gas supplies and heating oil and the like that they can't see past their own problems, right, which is – Look, Russia came into Ukraine and took a huge chunk of it. They previously had come into Georgia and taken chunks of that country, right? They continue to be having these bad ways, and the Europeans are just like, well, it's really hard, you know, it's just a challenging situation. Frankly, we need to strengthen their resolve, right? They need to stand for Russia. They're unwilling to do it, so we got to do it for them, right? And look, let's just be candid. The prior administration failed when it came to Russia. They thought they could do deals with Russia, right? President Obama famously whispering to Vladimir Putin, you know, give me a little room after that. And by the way, it wasn't just... Obama. It was George W. Bush who saw into Putin's soul and saw somebody he could deal with, right? And now Donald Trump, who's, you know, just seems to think that Putin has got a better story for him than our own intelligence community. So it's been a consistent series of Republican and Democratic administrations who haven't done the right thing with respect to Russia. And now finally, we start to push back a little bit, right? And it's funny because, you know, everyone's been saying, oh, Donald Trump, you know, behold Russia. The one time he starts to push back on Russia, oh, no, no, we can't do that. I mean, which way do you want it?
0: You have to push back on Russia in exactly the right way. He's not doing it the right way. get so yeah, exactly. There's always a criticism. All right, Dana, jump in here and talk about this treaty in context for us. We, the U.S., for national security purposes, we don't need overflights of Russia anymore. We have other ways to figure out what's going on on the ground there. Yes, there's this little concern with our European allies, but as Jamil points out, you know, they're a little bit feckless on a lot of stuff and frankly, they could use some good, stiff American leadership. Wouldn't it be better for us just to, to pull out of this treaty? Forget it. It's not really useful to us, focus our efforts on the real challenge for the U.S. globally, which is the rise of China. Why not just dispense with this nonsense and focus on the main thing, which is China? Why shouldn't we do that?
3: So first of all, we used to be the United States of America who could walk and chew gum at the same time. So you can stay in a treaty and hold Russia accountable for its obligations in the treaty and at the same time put together a coherent strategy to push back on China and China's rise. So when it comes to this treaty... It doesn't cost us anything to be in it. The treaty actually has a dispute resolution mechanism within it. If you're going to sustainably and coherently push back on Russia, you do need allies and partners. I disagree with Jamil that the Europeans are consumed by their own problems. We as well put our problems first. Their energy and economic needs are real to Europe and to European stability, which will only be exacerbated in a post-COVID-19 situation. So here's the deal. It doesn't cost us anything to be in this treaty. We can see what we want to see into Russia with other kinds of capabilities and platforms anyway, and it matters to the Europeans. So here's the other thing. It's not just about the Open Skies Treaty. The Trump administration has consistently pulled out of multilateral agreement after multilateral agreement, including treaties, which, as former SFRC staffers, we should probably discuss, the Senate ratifies with advice and consent. And the other thing about the Open Skies Treaty is that it violates... Law Congress passed a law as part of the most recent National Defense Authorization Act, which specifically said that before the Trump administration gives notice of its intent to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty, it needed to give Congress 120 days' notice. So now the issue for the Trump administration is not just that it is withdrawing from another U.S. Senate ratified treaty, but it is further deepening the divide between the congressional and the legislative. And if we are going to push back on Russia, it would be much better to have us all united. So now you have not just a treaty issue, the arms control treaty, you have a legislative executive issue sure.
2: as well. I mean, it goes back to the history of the executive branch ignoring the legislative branch when it comes to these issues and the unwillingness, the fecklessness, as, as Les would say, of the legislative branch in sorting its own rights. I mean, we look back just to the prior administration and the statutory requirement that you can't transfer detainees out of Gitmo without prior notice to Congress. And of course, the Obama administration sent four Taliban detainees, by the way, the same four Taliban detainees that are now leading the disastrous negotiations between us and them on Afghanistan. And they ignored that too. And even the GAO determined that, that the administration violated the law, but Congress, unwilling to do anything about it, as feckless as the Europeans are to Russia, just sort of takes it on the chin. And so that the same thing will happen here, right?
3: Okay, but Jamil, would you say the same thing about the Congress now in terms of fecklessness? Because I know like the... The favorite thing of of people like you is to go back and like say, well, it was really bad as well in the Obama administration. But in terms of the Trump administration violating laws or the J.O. finding that the Trump administration is in violation of law, would you say that the Trump administration compares at a same baseline to previous administrations, Democratic and Republican, or that this is a uniquely exacerbating executive branch in terms of its flagrant disregard for the legislative branch and its prerogatives?
2: There are a lot of things that are extreme about this administration that are hugely problematic. No question about that. I will not defend this administration on the way it behaves and frankly, the way the president behaves just in the last 48 hours. So let's not say that, right? I will say, however, when it comes to foreign policy issues, right? This is a 200 year long win for the executive branch, right? And maybe that, maybe early on, maybe that's not fair. Maybe early on, it was the legislative branch had a little bit of sway, right? But let's be candid. The last 200 years, the executive branch has held the whip hand. And the legislative branch hasn't really stood up. Now, there have been little things here and there. There's some reporting requirements we throw in and we make things mandatory where we can, but let's just not call it what it is, right? The legislative branch has never stood up to the executive branch in a substantive way. There are a few exceptions. I will I will admit that the early in this administration, Russia sanctions were a rare example of that. The things that we worked on uh, to push back on the Iran nuclear agreement and get Congress to review it was were minor examples of this. But at the end of the day, The executive branch has always held the whip hand. Congress has not been willing to stand up for its own equities. And it could use the power of the purse to do this, but it won't. Is there a bunch of pansies?
1: All right. So the only thing that matters here at the end of the day on any of these actions is whether or not they wholly improve U.S. national security right? And it's hard to imagine how pulling out of any of these treaties actually improves U.S. national security prospects, right? Instead, it looks more like cleaving the United States off from, from this treaty is actually a win for Moscow and for Beijing.
0: How do you call this move by the administration a win for Moscow? If anything, it's calling out Russia for its violations of international agreements in a way, frankly, that we haven't done before.
1: Because it has us walking away from our allies, right? Like, you have to understand what their goal is. They don't care about their other flights with the U.S., obviously, that much. What Moscow and Beijing care about right now is isolating the United States of America, making it stand alone instead of stand with their allies, because they understand that we need them and they need us. Like, we need to work together with our allies to maximize our national security prospects. And if they can cleave the United States away from their allies, then they've got to win.
0: Or another way of looking at it, Jody, is the U.S. needs to articulate a different view of the situation and bring its European allies along with it. Right now, we've been going along with a system that empowered Russia and China to misbehave in the international arena. The Europeans were all too happy to avoid any conflict and just keep rolling along the way it was. Finally, and like Jamil, I don't want to defend this administration or the things its leader says, but finally someone's calling bad behavior out on the carpet, and at least taking action to define differences. Yes, there is a problem with the Europeans not wanting to go along with us. The answer is more diplomacy, more outreach to Europe, and persuading them to come along with us.
1: Can't we do that within the treaty? Can't we use the mechanisms within the treaty to do that? Or is your solution that we all pull out? We have not pulled
2: out. We're threatening to pull out. Right? We're going to send the notification up because then it's real, right? Then we're putting it on the table, right? Look, it cannot possibly be the case that just because our feckless allies are never going to be tough on anybody that we just roll over every time. as Les says, we got to lead our allies, right This is about American leadership in the world. And I get that because we haven't done it for 12 years, right, nobody wants to do American leadership anymore. I get it, right? But just because we haven't done it for a little over a decade doesn't mean we shouldn't. So I would
3: just say to that, in the broader context of the European allies or any partner, any ally that we would want as the United States to be working with us, it's one thing if you're an administration that says we believe in international agreements, we believe in treaties, we've used and exhausted the diplomacy possible through the dispute resolution mechanism in this treaty, and so now we're threatening to withdraw out. And you use the threat of that six-month notification of withdrawal in order to stiffen the spines of the other governments in the treaty. The problem is with this administration, there's not going to be a process to actually stiffen the spines or the diplomacy put in to get to an end state in which we can stay part of this treaty. Because the Trump administration's playbook over and over and over is to create a huge drama about withdrawing from something, whether it's Paris Climate or JCPOA or INF or WHO, But then ultimately, they just do it anyway. So what would be the incentive for any of our partners or allies to actually work with the diplomacy with the United States in order to keep them in the treaty? In the end, the Europeans just assume they're going to be on their own, regardless at the end of this process anyway, because we know the playbook of the Donald Trump administration when it comes to international treaties and agreements. So I do think that there is a potential that the diplomacy could have been effective with the threat to withdrawal, but not with this administration and not with its playbook.
0: How do you evaluate the last administration? After the New START Treaty, its main two international agreements were the Paris Climate Accord and the Iran Nuclear Agreement. Neither one of those were submitted to the Senate for ratification. Yes, they had agreement with our allies and friends, but none of it could sustain a real support from the American political system. Which form of diplomacy is weaker? The kind of thing that does an international agreement just for the sake of an agreement, which won't get domestic support, or an administration that is willing to forego the usual niceties on international agreements and play to American voters?
1: Let's just say this, You need, from any administration two things, right? Their ability to work with our allies and their ability to work with Congress. Like, it is a complicated piece of diplomacy to bring along both of those audiences at the same time, but absolutely essential to success.
2: totally agree that being able to work with our allies and work with Congress is critical to foreign policy success. Guess what? We've had that problem for 12 years. The Obama administration didn't know how to work with Congress. They didn't work with our allies. In fact, they abandoned our allies at every turn. They empowered our enemies at every turn, not intentionally.
1: Listen, we had better relationships with our allies under the last administration by far. There's literally no comparison here.
2: We had such a great relationship because we rolled over. We just we just didn't do anything. We're like, "Oh, well, you know, whatever. Whatever you
0: guys want." All right, let's shift to our uh, to our second topic. Also last month The Trump administration hinted that it might begin nuclear testing again. We haven't had a full nuclear test since 1972. The Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which we have signed but not ratified, of course, prohibits such tests. But the administration is asserting that China and Russia might be conducting tests and has made this threat. Jamil, you think the world is ready for Donald Trump to set off a nuclear explosion?
2: No. Putting aside all the other miniature nuclear explosions that Donald Trump has set off in our own society and overseas, right, I think we're definitely not prepared for an actual nuclear explosion. That being said, it is very important that we have a robust nuclear deterrent, that we test the capability and know that it works, and that we refresh our nuclear capabilities, that we have the newest, latest warhead, and that we know it's workable. Now, we can do a lot of that through simulations with high-performance computing and the like, There are some things you can't be sure about unless you conduct a test. I'm not saying a test is warranted today or tomorrow, but the fact of the matter is there's a reason why we haven't ratified CTBT, and it's because the Senate won't ratify it because the Senate knows we might need a test again. That's why we're still in this. We've had president after president after president who's begged Congress to ratify it. The one example of legislative, you know, intransigence when it comes to foreign policy you know, it's this and it's the, uh, it's the convention on rights of persons with disabilities. Right. And so, you know, the law of a seat, right. Where they're saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to say yes to those things. Right. We're going to push back. And this is one of those things. And the reason here is a good one, right. It's because in order to keep our nuclear deterrent strong, to keep the triad strong, we need to refresh our capabilities. And sometimes you might need a test and that's okay. I'm not sure I
0: want this president pressing the button. Dana, Jody, what do you think? Democratic party going to push back on this idea?
3: There are certainly members of Congress who have already pushed back on the idea of the United States unilaterally uh, conducting a nuclear test at this point in time. First of all, given the tremendous global instability at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, global economic collapse, the last thing we need, and should I also mention all the unresolved hot conflicts all over, massive refugee crises, et cetera, the last thing we need to throw into this mix is is a nuclear test. In which case you could presume that a China or a Russia would receive that as a signal that it's okay for them to start testing, um, which again would just add a tremendous amount of instability, miscommunication, etc. And you could easily see, given the amount of distrust and questioning of intentions already, um, all the unilateral multilateral arms control soul treaties, etc, that are falling apart, um, how quickly the road to escalation might happen. Um, and Nuclear war is obviously something we should want to yeah. avoid. So I'd say this:
1: I agree with Jamil on on one point, which is I think it's very unlikely that the Senate will ratify CTBT. Uh, I think that I think that's a given. That doesn't mean at the same time that I think we should you know restart nuclear testing, if only because so much of our messaging uh, over the last five to 10 years has been about deterrence in this area, right? We've been trying to deter other countries from acting in this space, North Korea and Iran, but we're also not particularly interested in seeing an Indian or Pakistani tests, right? Like, it really undermines our message of deterrence in this space if the U.S. restarts uh, restarts nuclear testing. It's been 30 years. I am sure that there is some scientific advantage that we might get out of testing, But I'm not sure that that outweighs the risk uh, to our to our message of deterrence internationally.
0: So, Dana, the, uh, the Trump administration is hinting that, assuming it's still around next year, it might not renew the new START treaty in February of 2021. Instead, the administration wants a bigger nuclear agreement with Russia and China. Most traditional arms control advocates think that's not very realistic. Why not?
3: You don't need to be a traditional arms control advocate to understand why this is unrealistic at this point in time. What would be the reason for China looking at the United States as it continues to self-isolate from its partners and allies, pull out of treaty after treaty, pull out of the JCPOA, regardless of the merits of the JCPOA, what the United States looks like is an actor that negotiates agreements and doesn't stay inside of agreements. And given all of that, why would China, given all of the other tensions and problems in that bilateral relationship at this point in time, choose to negotiate, in which case it would probably have to make concessions on transparency, mutual access, etc.? And Russia, after the United States is pulling out of arms control treaty after arms control treaty, what reason would it have to spend the amount of time that is required, given the minutiae of arms control, to negotiate a new treaty at this point?
0: Jody, what do you think a potential Biden administration would do on arms control? Is it sufficient for Joe Biden just to go back and say, I'm going to reestablish the world as it was in 2016 and get back into these agreements that we foolishly exited? Or is his administration going to look to the future, see the new challenges that are in front of us and try to address those and come up with new approaches that will benefit U.S. national security?
1: I think Joe Biden can can walk and chew gum, right? So I think that he can look at the new stars arrangement that we agreed to in 2010, agreed to extend that because he can understand that uh, without an extension or replacement, there will be no legally binding constraint on the world's two largest nuclear arsenals for the first time in half a century. And at the same time, I am sure that he can understand that it would be better if that agreement included China, but that, as Dana suggested, that's probably not very realistic, right, that we need to look at what our deterrence options are vis-a-vis China, while also holding Russia accountable. So if we're able to extend New START, that also potentially allows us to extend New START's coverage over some of Russia's new systems, the, the avant-garde the Sarmat to be specific, the ones that are closest to deployment. And Russia has pretty much already told us that they would expect that New START would cover those new weapon systems. So I think you can do both of these things. You can have a Russia strategy and a China strategy. But the idea that we could have a strategy that would not include the extension of New START that would allow Russia to
3: build out a further weapons arsenal over which we had no oversight is absurd. I also think with a potential Biden administration coming in, there's a fundamental decision that they will have to make vis-a-vis Congress and, and what can be passed in Congress. So part of this depends upon the composition of Congress. And if there's also democratic control of Congress, in which case, perhaps there could be the two thirds necessary to pass treaties. If you have a divided Congress or if the assessment is that there's such partisanship about foreign policy issues There could be a decision by the Biden administration to strategically approach Congress to do the spade work of building bipartisan support for whatever its foreign policy or domestic initiatives might be. On the other hand, if they ultimately conclude that bipartisanship or getting bipartisan support for these kinds of signature foreign policy initiatives is not possible, then they are going to have to pursue different new and innovative tools to meet the challenges of the 21st century.
0: Jameel, let's go back to the New START extension. Even Mike Pompeo, as tough a critic on international agreements as there's probably ever been at the State Department, agrees that Russia's been complying with New START. Should we extend it?
2: I think New START was a mistake from the jump, and I would not extend it. I think the Senate ratified it on a fundamentally flawed Understanding of what will be covered and what would not be covered um, and what we would do in terms of uh, re-upping our nuclear stockpile and ensuring that we had the latest warheads and make the right investments. The prior administration never fulfilled those commitments that it made to the Senate and uh, so look I mean if we're, if we're willing to really make good on those commitments and really refresh the stockpile and, and, and be serious, then maybe we stay in. I just think that new start was fundamentally flawed.
0: So your beef isn't with the treaty per se. it's the way the U.S has handled its own nuclear arsenal in light of the treaty.
2: That's exactly right. And look, we still have not recommitted to really what we need to do. I mean, look, the investments are large and we're in a time of economic challenges, no doubt. Um, but those investments are necessary if we're going to keep the uh, nuclear triad and the nuclear deterrent capability of the United States, particularly as our as our as our opponents in, in China start to refresh their capabilities um, and really make them robust, not just in the nuclear, but the non-nuclear arena also. We're not investing what we need to and we need to do that. So again, now that we're in the treaty, I'm not necessarily opposed to like keeping the party going, but the the deal for keeping it going has got to be a real investment in our core infrastructure to keep our deterrent sustained.
1: Why do those issues in your head, Jamil, why do they have to be? I get why they were merged together in the context of getting ratification of the treaty. But if you just look at the treaty itself, like, is it logical to you that we would forego oversight of russia's arsenal over its strategic nuclear weapons like is that logical to you that we would pull out of that so that we didn't have the insight into what they're doing not to mention be able to cover their new weapon systems like how does that make sense to you
2: yeah no no no. i to be clear that's part of why i was saying look i think at the end of the day you gotta you gotta stick with it but i think the i think congress should exact a price from the president right as part of continuing this deal going forward if we are going to continue going forward Um, that we invest here at home and that there be sort of bipartisan consensus on that. The problem was Congress exacted that deal from the prior president and then there was utter failure to make that. Well, there's no money,
1: I mean, right? I mean, isn't that what we're getting at? The, the, The price tag on this thing is extraordinary at a moment where our resources are limited. So like, even if you wanted to do that, like even if you, you know, like I could argue even as a Democrat, like I don't have an opposition to rebuilding our nuclear arsenal, but I can't figure out how we pay for it.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we're, we're running record deficits um, in this administration uh, and only only growing now with COVID. And so, um, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? I mean, look, we can't allow our nuclear stockpile to degrade. And we're on the verge of that, right? We're on the verge of the life extension programs not being soon enough um, without having the new warhead ready in time. We're not going to be able to refresh the stockpile. We are on the verge of the nuclear triad falling apart and our deterrence disappearing. Now,
1: And yet we're investing billions of dollars in defense, and particularly in conventional defense on an annual basis, right? Like, where are those trade-offs?
2: To make those trade-offs real, we have to get serious about economic issues here domestically, right? And the massive... Uh, you know, social welfare state that we've created over the last five decades. Right. Let's be candid. This is about Social Security. This is about the ridiculous health care plan. Right. That's what this is about. And until we're really willing to confront those entitlements, we're not really going to get back to solving our national security problem.
0: I think we're just going to have to get by with a trillion dollar deficit for the next few years and somehow scrape by by only going a trillion dollars in debt every year. All right, let's do one quick round on another international organization question before we get to our final segment. WHO, let's talk about the World Health Organization. President announced last week that the U.S. is pulling out of it. It's going to take a while to actually execute that decision. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Real quick, each person, are you in favor of this? If not, why not? If yes, why? Dana, we'll go to you first.
3: I am, of course, and predictably not in favor of this decision. I think this is a little similar to the previous, which is how do you change and reform organizations by staying inside or withdrawing from them? So when it comes to the WHO, certainly there were serious problems with the way they handled the outbreak, their engagement with China. But the question is, are we better off working for change by pressuring from within with funding, reporting, diplomacy, et cetera, or just pulling out altogether? The WHO shares important information. With its members, which I think we would want to be part of, access to vaccinations and development, et cetera. Um, so I think this is a net negative and not in the interest of the American people.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with Dana 100%. I think that it is a mistake to withdraw. We Using the threat to withdraw was the right thing to do. Um, but in order, if you're going to make a threat, right, you have to be willing to make good on it. The problem is, the president didn't really spend any time really trying to get reform, right? It's been weeks, not months, right? And by the way, worth noting, we're in the middle, still in the middle of a global health pandemic. Notwithstanding the, the fact the president wants to assume that we're going to be out of it soon, right? The reality is we are in the middle of it. We'll remain in the middle of it for a long time. We ought to continue pressing for reform. We ought to continue holding their feet to the fire. We need to give that reform time to happen. You can't just say, "Hey, I'm going to pull out and then be gone overnight." You've got to try and put pressure on people that's the total fail here. I actually agree with Dana 100%. Uh, this is a failed strategy. It makes it look like the entire goal was just to get out from the jump and not really get real reform. Um, and there's nothing to replace the WHO. If the administration had some like magic theory about how they, where they were going to put the money and how they are going to replace it and the sort of the U.S. counter to the WHO, fine. Yes, Dana's 100% right that they've been obsequious to China and they've failed in their handling of this crisis, but the answer is not pull out precipitously. It's reminiscent of the uh, prior administration's withdrawal from Iraq that was a mistake. So is this.
1: I think it's really unfortunate in another way, which is the U.S. has been a real global leader on global health issues. Right? It is actually a huge piece of our international diplomacy that we've invested in global health. And I think this with one shot really reverses a lot of that, even though we're still putting a ton of money in through um, through AID and other places. But it, internationally, it undermines the U.S. image as a leader in global health. And second, I would just say, yeah, WHO absolutely imperfect, as are a lot of other international organizations. And I'd just like to make a plea in this space, which is the U.S. needs to reinvest in international organizations. We stopped playing the I.O. game some years ago, multiple administrations ago. We stopped playing the I.O. game. What I mean by that is we stopped fighting for U.S. and allied positions of leadership within international organizations. And we ceded those space to non-democratic actors who saw an opportunity to get a foothold that they couldn't otherwise. And they've taken over the leadership of many of these organizations to our great detriment, and frankly, and more importantly, to the detriment of international peace and security.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, Jody. I think China's eaten our lunch at uh, UN organizations. We've been neglectful. It's a terrible decision. It gets the president nothing that he didn't already have by threatening to get out. Yes, WHO has some issues, maybe some deep issues that we need to go fix. uh, But pulling out in the middle of a pandemic just makes, us look incredibly foolish. So evidently, that issue is not a fault line, as we are all in agreement. All right, uh, final segment of the show. Let's uh, go around the horn and everyone talk about an issue they're following that might be outside of the main news spotlight. Dana, do you want to go first?
3: Sure. So again, as former SFRC staffers, one of the things that you do is move nominations, uh, through the committee to the Senate floor for vote. Uh, normally the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that's not really a contentious issue other than a few bad eggs. You have majority, well, not majority, but a decent size of career diplomats who are nominated after Long careers in the Foreign Service to represent their country in embassies abroad or in positions here, and then some political appointees at at certain posts. The Trump administration has set a new record in that the proportion of ambassadorial uh, nominations going to donors over career diplomats. So there's actually under U.S. law, career diplomats must outnumber political appointees. That balance under the Trump administration is under threat handing out uh, ambassadorial nominations like candy to some grossly unqualified uh, people, which is why many of the nominations have been held up by the oversight role of the democratic side of the Senate foreign relations committee right now, 57% of ambassador nominations are going to political
0: appointees. Uh, Jody.
3: Yeah. I love to say as the former staff director of the
1: Senate foreign relations committee, I, mean, I did not know that number, but I find it, I, I, I'm literally my mouth fell open. Uh, So what am I following? Uh, The five Iranian oil tankers that have delivered uh, oil to Venezuela uh, over the past week. I think this is just a fascinating issue, right? So for Iran, this is like clearly a show of defiance against U.S. sanctions. uh, No less so because Venezuela is, of course, in the in the Western Hemisphere. And for Venezuela, it's nothing more than a demonstration of its absolute desperation, like the fall of the Venezuelan oil industry is beyond imagination, right? So this is a country that has the largest oil reserves on the entire globe and for whom oil represented 97% of its foreign exchange earnings. We are at a place now where Venezuela doesn't even have the workers to operate its refineries. Like it is beyond shocking what has happened. And I think the piece to take away here is the real effect of failed governance. What what can a government fail its people? And the answer is really, really badly and pretty quickly.
0: All right. The issue I'm following is also related to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is the overall comedy on the committee in the past. And I think largely when we were working there, we had disagreements. But at the end of the day, the two sides, Republicans and Democrats, were able to agree on an agenda and a way forward and a way to Get the work of the Senate done that the committee had to handle. It appears that that is breaking down. Uh, you don't have agreement on things like the agenda, on the way committee activities are shared with the rest of the community, with Washington, and the public. Uh, it's a real shame, and I'm not I'm not casting blame anywhere. But when we think about the place where we all used to work, it was really relevant and important that both sides figured out a way to get their disagreements in one place and handle them and do the work of the committee and do the work that the country needed to have done it's important that that committee oversee what the administration's doing and I'm worried about the trajectory right now so that's what I'm following
1: you know I think it's it's noteworthy that when you and I were you know co-staff directors of that committee and we worked just down the hall from each other, that there were many, many instances of you and I stomping into each other's offices and, and basically having it out uh, sometimes, <laughs> right? I mean, really yelling at each other, screaming at each other, sometimes sending nasty, hallway, nasty, nasty emails back and forth <laughs> to each other from time to time. But there was never once an instance where one side moved forward without the other, not ever. That's
2: right. Jamil. Yes. So I'm following the uh, obviously the ongoing unrest here in the United States, but really, most importantly, the role that Russia or China is or may play in stoking some of the unrest here in the United States. We know uh, for a fact that Russia uh, engaged in uh, debates on both sides of this this issue back in the 2016 election. We've all seen the Facebook ads uh, where they took very aggressive positions trying to stoke racial divides and racial hatred in the United States on both sides. And so I think we can expect to see more of that from Russia. If they're not already involved, it would be very surprising if they're not already involved, but if they aren't, they'll get involved very soon. The Chinese already, just over the weekend, you saw uh, the same spokesperson for the Chinese government who accused the U.S. of being responsible for the underlying virus of COVID, now calling the president out for hiding out in the White House. To be fair, not an unfair criticism, but when, when China does it from the mouthpiece of the foreign ministry, that's a real problem. We also saw another spokeswoman for the Chinese foreign ministry uh, tweeting out, I can't breathe, right? The the famous phrase uttered by George Floyd, right? There's no reason for the Chinese to be doing that other than to stoke division and divisiveness here in the United States. You can assume if they're doing it overtly, that they're also doing it covertly. We know that they were stoking uh, the protests uh, that took place in the coronavirus reopen the country uh, situation. We know the Chinese were re-pushing that stuff out. And so I think we're likely to see more of that. That's a real concern. And people should be on alert for that and keeping an eye out for that.
0: Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events, such as an interview with former Senator Saxby Chambliss on Thursday, June 11th at 5 p.m. at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Sec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Hannah Petruzzi for research assistance, and our amazing producer and director Grant Haver for pulling all this together. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.